Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jennifer Wallace. And I'm Adrian Poole. And this event is in association with the University of Cambridge, where Jenny and I both teach English. And I'm going to kick off. <laughs> Thank you. Celebrity is not a word that we find in Shakespeare. We might have. The word did exist. It was a pale synonym for fame. And Shakespeare and his contemporaries were certainly very interested in fame. So, in fact, it's some 200 years after Shakespeare's death before a distinction begins to be made between fame and celebrity. Here, uh, thank God for the OED, as usual. In early use, frequently synonymous with fame, but later often distinguished as referring to a more ephemeral condition or as associated with popular as opposed to high culture, some of the issues that we're going to explore. And the first recorded reference that the OED provides us to an individual as a celebrity dates from 1831. So Shakespeare and celebrity, it all starts around the middle of the 18th century, well, uh, 100 years, well after, uh, more than 100 years after his death, shortly before the bicentenary of his birth in 1764. And you could say it all starts with the mulberry tree. This is not the original mulberry tree, for reasons that will become apparent in a moment, though it is alleged to be, uh, to be grown from a scion of the original. Tradition has it, this may be well known to all of you, that William Shakespeare planted a mulberry tree in the garden of his Stratford home, his last home at New Place. And people started to visit uh, Stratford and seek out the, 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 the places where he lived from the beginning of the 18th century onwards. The occupant of the house, New Place, the Reverend Francis Gastrell, got so fed up with these people knocking on the door and wanting to see the wretched tree that he cut it down and sold the wood to a local entrepreneur who started turning it into souvenirs, rather grand souvenirs like this, which is a box made out of the mulberry tree, allegedly, given to David Garrick, the leading Shakespearean actor of the time, or this tea caddy with a... Um, this works. You can see Shakespeare there, which sold at Christie's a couple of years ago for £13,000. So the items made from the mulberry tree, which uh, a later visitor said had the power of self-multiplication that one would only credit to the cross, uh, this became uh, a very thriving local business. We may say more about this later. Now, all this happens just shortly before the bicentenary of Shakespeare's birth in 1764. Garrick, I've mentioned, leading Shakespearean actor of the time, uh, is asked to provide a statue for Stratford uh, and doesn't do so, but um, does institute a jubilee five years late, but never mind, in 1769. And here's where things really begin to kick off. 
1769, big jubilee in Stratford. It pours with rain, as usual, uh, in these events. They're not here today, which is good. Um, it's a bit of a mess, but nevertheless, this gets the idea of celebrating the centenary really going. And there are going to be subsequent centenaries, particularly in 1864, 1916, and hey-ho, 2016. Now, I started getting interested in these anniversaries, was asked to uh, contribute an essay to a volume of essays about celebrating Shakespeare. And I thought to myself, I wondered what happened in 1816. Huge amount of very good work, interesting work, has been done on 1916, and indeed 1864. But nobody much had thought about 1816, and I thought to myself, I wonder what happened or failed to happen. Because it is around this time, precisely, that the cult of modern literary celebrity really begins to take formation. Well, there's a simple answer. In April 23rd, Shakespeare's birth and death, allegedly, in April 1816, Britain had better things to do than to celebrate the birth and death of the uh, national poet. The single figure most prominent in the British imagination in 1816 was the victor of Waterloo. Waterloo, a uh, huge event, uh, anniversary last year, of course, and in 1816, Britain was still very much living in the immediate, long aftermath of Waterloo. So it was the victor of Waterloo who was most vigorously commemorated in the national imagination and starts to be monumentalized in this extraordinary 1822 statue of Achilles at the southwestern end of London's Park Lane in honor of Wellington, or again <clears throat> in Edinburgh on Prince's Street, not far from the Scott Monument, which I'll come back to in a moment and so on, and there's Goya's great portrait, which slightly predates 1816, it's true. Nevertheless, like Wellington and Waterloo, though more enduringly, Shakespeare will serve as a figure around which to unite people, a nation, a race, an empire. Let me introduce now the largely forgotten figure of John Britton, leading topographer and antiquarian of his age. Born just over a month before Walter Scott, he shared some of the writer's passions and none of his genius. He produced, as you'll see here, uh, an extraordinary number of volumes celebrating the beauties of England and Wales, the architectural antiquities of Great, Great Britain, and so on. Now, Britain was obsessed with the monumental bust of Shakespeare in Holy Trinity Church, Stratford, and labored to propagate its image. It was, he insisted, the sole authentic image of the bard. More authentic than Westminster Abbey's marble statue in Poet's Corner from 1741, or the painted portraits, though he could be forgiven for not knowing the one on the left, the Cobb portrait, which has only recently been discovered and hailed as uh, authentic like so many others. On the 23rd of April, 1816, Britain published an engraving of the Stratford bust with an essay contending that this invaluable effigy is attested by tradition, 
consecrated by time and preserved in the inviolability of its own simplicity and sacred station, and this is important, the sighting of the bust in the church at Stratford. The engraving sparked much public debate. Wordsworth complained of the cheek and the jowl that the former wants sentiment and there is too much of the latter, the jowl. Uh, this is one of the more politer things, that, the politer things that were said about the engraving. But others rallied to support the idea of perfection embodied in the bust, one describing it as this invaluable relic. What else happened in 1816? Not a lot. In Stratford, there were some local celebrations uh, on the 23rd of April involving eating, drinking, and fireworks. It rained, as usual. <laughs> a new commemorative uh, medal was struck in imitation of Garrick's of 1769, inevitably declaring, you can't read it here, we shall not look upon his like again. I love this because this is in defiance of the number of infinite replications of his likeness that are from now on going to be uh, reproduced, starting to stretch out to the crack of doom. Britain was not a man to give up. He was full of what would become Victorian virtues. He died in 1857. He started a project for the erection of a magnificent edifice to the memory of Shakespeare and the nature of a museum, cenotaph, or temple. He was involved in restoring the chancel in the church at Stratford, and so on and so on. So Britain is a prime exponent of the kind of interest in commemorating Shakespeare that focuses on effigy and edifice. He borrows without embarrassment the traditional vocabulary of religious rites in speaking of relics, shrines, pilgrimage. Words, whether Shakespeare's or anyone else's, are of secondary importance compared to sites, that is both visual sites and sites as in venues or locations. Words for Britain and his ilk are mainly a means of getting things done and getting things down as matters of record, document, and fact. So what about the words, then, which are quite important when one remembers Shakespeare? The great literary celebrities of the post-Waterloo years were Byron and Scott. And Scott is a key figure here. In the late summer of 1859, Scott traveled, like many, many other English tourists, to the killing fields of Waterloo. And he turned this experience into a volume entitled Paul's Letters to His Kinsfolk that very few people seem to have read except me. It was almost disappointing to find the signs of carnage already gone or going. There was already a stench, there was still, sorry, there was still a stench in the air. At least the bodies and body parts were no longer visible. Modern historians go into lurid detail about the stripping of the corpses, including their valuable teeth. When Scott arrived, the relics of the carnage were being pocketed by the souvenir hunters, of whom Scott himself was shamelessly one. 
the bits and pieces were being marketed by the locals. Uh, Scott advised one of them about how to get more for his money. And Scott wondered what would become of a door that had been removed from a mansion there. He said, it will surely be cut up into trinkets like Shakespeare's famous mulberry tree, invaluable relics. Uh, many of these relics survive. The stories go on in books published last year, such as Waterloo in a Hundred Objects. Now, the single main point I want to make in this little talk is this. It is the analogy between the material fragments scattered across the battlefield and the Shakespearean words scattered across the body of Scott's writing. Walter Scott ransacks Shakespeare more freely than almost any other writer of the age, but then they all do this. They all do this. Wordsworth, Coleridge, of course, Keats, Hazlitt. And in doing so, they set the tone for at least a century to come for novelists like Dickens, George Eliot, Hardy, poets like Tennyson, Browning, Arnold, and, and so on. Now, this is, of course, an enormous and complex and fascinating issue, the ways in which Shakespearean language and stories infiltrate English cultural discourse, both literary but also popular, to the point where they are no longer recognizable as Shakespearean. This little book of Scott's, which is extremely interesting, should be better known, Paul's Letters to His Kinsfolk, is not remembered now in the way that his novels are remembered. At least everybody has heard of Waverley, at the very least, if only because the afterlives of Scott and his characters have been so diffuse and the relics of their existence so substantial. The names of a railway station, Waverley, to match Waterloo. The name of the football club I supported in my Edinburgh youth, Heart of Midlothian, now, of course, owned by a Russian tycoon. The names of towns and streets all over the Anglophone world. You cannot walk down uh, Edinburgh's Princes Street without noticing the Scott Monument, the huge Gothic pile begun in 1840 and inaugurated in 1846. Rather melancholy uh, statue of Scott himself. Uh, you can just see the white thing beneath this enormous Gothic tower. This is how Shakespeare might have been commemorated if the likes of John Breton had had their way. The brass plaque buried beneath the Scott Monument does indeed claim, rather poignantly I think now, for Scott and his creations being the nearest thing to Shakespeare. Seek transit Gloria Mundi. In the 1840s this would undoubtedly have seemed true, though Dickens would soon rival and in due course overreach his predecessor. Now I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the only rival that's known to me, a near rival to the Scott Monument, very modest by comparison and certainly known to some people in the room, the very fine, I think, statue group in Stratford by Ronald Gower, Sir Ronald, Lord Ronald Gower from 1888, with Shakespeare on the top there, 
if I can get him at the top, Falstaff here, uh, Henry V there, and I just show you, there's Shakespeare, there's, oh, I wonder who that could possibly be. <laughs> uh, Lady Macbeth, fascinating if you think of, you know, the criteria that go into these choices, and young Henry V, uh, or Prince Hal, perhaps one should say. Now, I've strayed some distance from relics. We'll come back to them. I just want to leave it hanging here for a moment and hand over to Jenny with this big contrast, at least in mind, between, on the one hand, the relics, the statues, the buildings, the memorabilia, the materials of the tourist trade, on the one hand, and the experience of reading words on the page, hearing them in performance, of seeing live beings reenacting. I hesitate to say resurrecting the body of the great dramatic stories themselves. Thank you. Um, by the late 18th century, John Milton, the poet, who had died back in 1674, was making a comeback in literary Republican circles. Thomas Gray, the tercentenary of whose birth in 1716 we are celebrating this year in a perhaps more low-key way than the Shakespearean anniversary, um, Thomas Gray had cited Milton as an example of hallowed fame in his famous poem, Elegy, written in a country churchyard. Um, in this poem, Gray actually imagines that in contrast to the great Milton, some mute, inglorious Milton might be buried there. Um, you might not know this poem that well, but you'll recognize quite a few extracts from it, full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air, um, Gray mused. Wordsworth, William Wordsworth longed for Milton's manner, virtue, freedom, power in 1802 when in, in uh, what is I think one of his weaker sonnets he called for the poet's inspiration at the height of the Napoleonic War. Milton Thou shouldst be living at this hour. England has need of thee. She is a fen of stagnant waters, altar, sword, and pen, fireside. The heroic wealth of hall and bower have forfeited their ancient English dower of inward happiness. We are selfish men. And so he goes on. Blake, William Blake, uh, for whom uh, Milton kind of runs through all his poems, but his epic actually called Milton um, a mystical, enigmatic epic, which this is the frontispiece for, um, most famous for its prefatory poem, and did those feet in ancient time, which we regularly sing. Um, in this poem, um, Milton returns to earth, uh, or eternal death, across chaos, 
from heaven to correct its errors. And he actually, um, in typical Mil uh, Blakeian way, Milton merges with Blake's spirit, initially, according to Blake, descending down the nerves of my right arm in the form of inspiration, and later entering his left foot, falling on the tarsus before the hybrid creature then, Mil Milton and Blake, walk into the city of art. Keats, this is the famous little sketch of Keats by John Severn as he lay dying um, uh, young in Rome. Keats was shown a lock of Milton's hair by his friend Lee Hunt, who had in turn been given it by his surgeon friend, Dr. Batty. And uh, Keats was inspired by what he called his genius-loving heart to compose some lines on seeing a lock of Milton's hair. For many years, my offerings must be hushed. When I do speak, I'll think upon this hour because I feel my forehead hot and flushed, even at the simplest vessel of thy power. A lock of thy bright hair, sudden it came, and I was startled when I heard thy name coupled so unaware. Yet, at the moment, temperate was my blood, Methought I had beheld it from the flood. Keats actually is a really interesting um, writer in relation to all that we've been saying about fame because in some ways he spent his whole life thinking about what it was to be famous. As he lay dying, he actually said to Seven that he thought he could already feel himself living his posthumous life. Um, when he was... Uh, uh, writing his first um, major poem, Endymion, he worried whether he had already succeeded in walking a dozen paces nearer to the Temple of Fame. And he reflected um, when he, he, he did a tour of Scotland and actually visited the um, cottage um, in which the poet Robert Burns was born in Ayrshire. And... Um, there we go. Um, and wrote a sonnet um, about his mixed emotions after visiting Burns's house. This mortal body of a thousand days now fills, O Burns, a space in thine own room where thou didst dream alone on budded bays, happy and thoughtless of thy day of doom. My pulse is warm with thine own barley brie, my head is light with pledging a great soul. My eyes are wandering and I cannot see. Fancy is dead and drunken at its goal. Yet can I stamp my foot upon thy floor. Yet can I ope thy window sash to find the meadow thou hast tramped o'er and o'er. Yet can I think of thee till thought is blind. Yet can I gulp a bumper to thy name. Oh, smile among the shades, for this is fame. Keats reflecting on perhaps the emptiness of what a tourist site might be like and uh, numbing himself with what probably wasn't then the official Robert Burns single malt whiskey, but drinking barley brie all the same. The lock of hair that inspired Keats's poem was later given by Lee Hunt to Robert Browning, who kept it together with a lock of hair um, from the head of his wife, Elizabeth 
Barrett, which she had sent him in the early days of their courtship. Um, and you can see both locks of hair, Milton's and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's hair, joined together in a single reliquary in the uh, Keats Shelley house in uh, Rome. Um, the reliquary, which actually once belonged to a pope, and we might want to talk about uh, the links between Catholic relics and poetic relics um, later. The, the lock of hair actually was purchased by one Dallas Pratt at a New York auction in 1933 um, and donated by him to the Keats Shelley Memorial Association in 1971. So that's how it got from Robert Browning, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, back, to, back to Rome. So in the late 18th and early 19th century, everyone wanted a piece of Milton. His words, his meter, his free verse um, could be seen in Wordsworth's prelude. His politics and his potentially subversive religious vision there in William Blake. His genius um, in Keats's poems, whatever confusingly that might mean. But what was also the subject of discussion in some circles was the actual disinternment of his coffin in St. Giles Cripplegate in August 1790, over a hundred years after he died. <clears throat> the church now uh, in the middle of the Barbican. According to Philip Neve, who published a pamphlet a few days later telling the story in outraged tones, a few local parishioners, a pawnbroker, a grave digger, a publican, a coffin maker, in Cripplegate had dug up Milton, ransacked the body, and sold pieces of it as relics or souvenirs. Neve himself had bought some hair, a tooth, a piece of the coffin, and a small bone for four shillings <clears throat> as part of his research for the article, supposedly, and he was calling in his pamphlet for the rest to be restored to the grave. But at that point, the pamphlet ends, and there's no record of what happened next, and whether, indeed, all the pieces of Milton were returned to St. Giles Cripplegate. I personally like to think that the lock of hair that Keats uh, saw and, was inspi and inspired his, his poem, and that Dallas Pratt later purchased, I like to think that that lock of hair actually owed its origins to this enterprising but much condemned piece of body snatching in August 1790. So who were these people who dug up Milton? Why did they do it? What did Milton mean to them? Um, and most importantly, what happened next? What happened to the bits? Tracing the history of relics always seems to involve navigating the boundary between fact and fiction. How can you tell, for example, the real mulberry tree of Shakespeare as opposed to the fictional? And why does it matter anyway? And so, um, while thinking about this, <clears throat> I found the way to answer these questions was to write a novel to allow my heroine to find her Miltonic voice, literally with Milton's jaw tucked in her bosom, and write back to Philip Neve, the pamphlet writer, and to all those who might condemn her. Elizabeth Grant, gravedigger, is present when the men disinter the body and is left to guard the body in the church later that day, quietly monetizing the opportunity. 
by charging visitors sixpence to guard the body and turning a blind eye when they proceed to get their full money's worth by taking a souvenir, a toe or a finger after they, uh, a souvenir of their visit. Um, in my uh, novel, uh, Elizabeth Grant is illiterate, as so many working class women were at the time, so she can't actually read the poet, she can't read Paradise Lost, but that epic, the uh, epic of Milton, Paradise Lost, and its careful charting of innocence, guilt, temptation and judgment come to shadow her life and experience and to structure the novel. So I thought I'd just um, <clears throat> read a few pages just to give you Lizzie's voice <clears throat> um, before we start the discussion. So this is just the moment when they first open the coffin. The men had now, with some difficulty, pulled the leaden coffin up out of the pit and into the daylight on the stone-flagged floor. I could see it better now, black and dusty, with one corroded hole open large enough for vermin to scurry through at the coffin's foot. We all stood silent for a few minutes, staring down at the box. I have thought since that had we but realized we had the chance then to leave the dead in peace and continue to li live a blessed life. But at the time, we thought only that we were standing as if upon the brink of a vast and thrilling chasm which we could choose to enter or ignore. What say you that we take a peek at the man, whispers old Mr. Lamming after a while, crouching down beside the box and holding his lighted candle to the hole. I could see his thin, eager nose was already picking up some noxious scent from the cavity, but try as he might, he could not cast his candle's light far into the black hollow. It's enough, surely, that we have studied his coffin, replies my husband. Mr. Strong was most forceful yesterday that it should not be disturbed. Good God, Grant, have some courage, sir, cries Mr. Fountain. We have not come this close to regarding the remains of our greatest poet, only to rebury them without reward. What harm can it do just to prise open the lid a little? It is but a small thing to nail it closed again. My husband shook his head uncertainly, and it seemed as if he and Mr. Fountain might continue to argue for some time. But Mr. Lamming and Mr. Taylor now regained their former energy and also urged Holmes to open the coffin that they might see the body. Holmes was happy to oblige, for he was as seized by the unholy desire to view the body of the bard as the rest of us, my husband, were he to admit it, included. And so he ran back to his house to fetch a mallet and a chisel, which he had neglected to bring, and was in no time at all returned with the tools. He proceeded to cut open the top of the coffin and then peel back the leaden sheet slowly. We all gasped. The body appeared perfect. I could see the outline of a head wrapped in a shroud, the shoulders well-defined, the chest proud and sturdy, the ribs standing up regularly. The body was about five feet five inches in length, about the same fine length and shape as Mr. Grant when he lies in our bed beside me. But the whole was wrapped in a winding sheet so that we could discern only the contours of the body and not the visage or the characteristics. Let's see the rascal, said Mr. Lamming, trying to lighten the mood with a quip. 
And when the others nodded assent vigorously around him, he steps forward with alacrity and pulls back the shroud. Immediately, the chest collapsed on account, Mr. Taylor explained, of the ribs crumbling inside. No matter, the face and head were still perfect. Tis no doubt, tis Milton, whispers my husband at last, while everyone was silent with astonishment. The poet may have been blind, but he had a fine head of hair by all accounts. And look, this man's hair is still luxurious and fair. He touched one of the yellow-brown strands, and it came away in his hands like a well-boiled leek that's tender and ripe for eating. Let me touch the sacred body, says Mr. Fountain, not wanting to be outdone by my husband, for there has long been a rivalry between them on account of me and my past history, but of that I will tell you more later. Let me touch the sacred body, says Mr. Fountain, and he runs his hand all over the face, feeling in the eye sockets, which were empty and corrupt, and over the fine bony nose, and even inside the mouth. In the mouth, his fingers stopped, for I was watching most particularly, and he seemed to hold onto one of the teeth. He was quietly pulling it and pulling it, but it would not come, and the others were now examining the chest and not paying attention, and my husband was lost in his own meditations and oblivious to what was taking place. But I saw Mr. Fountain's difficulty, and so I bent down, and I picked up a stone off the floor, for the floor was all broken up and pitted on account of the workmen and the repair, and I stepped forward, and I'll help you, Mr. F., I says in a low voice, and brought that stone down hard on the side of the face, and all the teeth and the upper and lower jaw fell out in Mr. Fountain's hand. Mr. Lamming and Mr. Taylor both looked up, and I stood proud and beaming at my efforts, and Mr. Fountain held out the treasure for everyone to see. There were but five teeth in the upper jaw, all gleaming white and sound, and four in the lower jaw. Mr. Lamming took three teeth, and Mr. Taylor took two. "'What will you give me?' I whispers. "'Who knocked this treasure out for you, "'and not the first treasure I've given you in my life, neither?' And I winked, of which more later, and held out my hand, and he gave me the upper jaw with two white teeth still in it. "'You're still a great girl, Lizzie,' he murmured, and shot a glance at Mr. Grant, but he was standing a little way off, still staring at the lock of hair in his hand in stupefaction, and not aware of anything we did. I slipped the jaw into my bosom, and I says, "'This is our secret, Mr. Fountain. Never mention a word to any man.' And all morning, when I felt the awkward corners of the jaw press painfully upon my chest, I thought with pleasure of Mr. Fountain and the private transaction between us. So um, we'll invite questions in a few minutes, but we just want to follow up a few things that we've set going here. I'm going to ask Jenny in a moment to say something more about the ways in which particular writers at particular moments in history uh, loom into prominence and, and uh, loom out of it. Um, but before we do that, I just want to follow up something uh, <coughs> that Jenny raised when she uh, used the phrase relic or souvenir. Um, 
because I, oh, sorry, this is not a, a criticism of, of, of using that phrase, but I, I think we need to begin to make some distinctions here. We're talking about the sacred and the profane and the way in which they collide and intermesh in all kinds of ways. But I think something does change in this history around 1850, to put it rather bluntly. Around 1850, several things happen. In 1848, Shakespeare's birthplace um, is, is, um, is up for sale because the widow who's been occupying it dies, and the question of what happens to Shakespeare's birthplace becomes of national, even international importance. Uh, there are rumors that P.T. Barnum, the legendary American entrepreneur, was going to buy it up and put it on casters, yes, and wheel it around the United States. Uh, um, and so there was a huge kind of movement to save the birthplace for the nation. And to cut a long story short, this was successful. So that's a really important moment when Shakespeare's birthplace becomes the property that we now all know it to be. The other thing that happens is 1851, the Great Exhibition. In the Great Exhibition, Shakespeare figures really very prominently stamped onto plates, onto vases, onto all kinds of material artifacts which are now being produced, reproduced, through the new industrial technology, electroplating and so on, that make available uh, souvenirs, mementos, whatever the right word is, now that are theoretically available and, uh, you know, cheap, for anyone to buy, anyone to buy. You might want to say something about the class and social things involved here. But I think that moment when uh, the, the sacred, the, the sense of the relics that Shakespeare himself touched, his walking stick, the wretched mulberry tree, his chair, his wife's shoe, and so on, because there was an equivalent to this extremely interesting fictional character that Jenny's, um, that Jenny's uh, created in this wonderful novel of hers, which is on sale and which she'll be signing for afterwards, you forgot to say. Um, there is an equivalent in Stratford who's selling all these things as the authentic artifacts. Up until 1820, her name was Mary Hornby, when she gets evicted by the owner of the birthplace who lives next door, another woman who says, out with you, I'm taking over. And the, subsequently, there's, for several years, there's this huge kind of war of words across Henley Street between the two women uh, over who's got the real relics and who's in charge. So a real battle. But around the middle of the, eight, of the 19th century, I think things do change a bit. And commerce, commodification, Shakespeare for everybody uh, becomes more of a reality. So, I think there's. I mean, the, this is a period when um, the uh, sacredness of um, religious objects gets replaced by a sort of sacredness of literary or poetic objects. I mean, there's a period uh, in uh, the late 18th century and beginning of the 19th century where um, poets are seen to have some kind of prophetic. Uh, powers and to um, carry the same kind of um, cultural weight as previously religious thinkers might be. So there is a sense in which the, the relics of Milton, as it were, um, have that same kind of mirac uh, are seen to have that same kind of miraculous power, maybe, as religious relics previously uh, did. Um, and um, so there's, there's a um, 
so there's a kind of uh, aura about uh, maybe you know possessing um, the uh, the bone of of Milton. But I think it, there's also um, and there has always been an interest in distinguishing the real relic from the fake. Um, and um, uh, Adrian, you you talked about comparing the mulberry tree with the with the cross. Um, and, uh, of course, we're all familiar with the idea that there is more wood floating around the world that's said to be, um, you know, fragments from the true cross uh, from, um, than there would ever be, uh, than you could ever make a cross from. Um, I actually, as part of the, um, when I was doing the research for this novel um, and reading the contemporary newspapers of the time, I actually came across um, in the public advertiser, a bill of sale for um, items of Milton, um, uh, a, a list of um, uh, teeth and bones and so on, with their price um, in um, shillings and pence. Um, and um, and as I as I read this, um, which was amazing because it showed you know that this the the currency of the event. I realized that this was actually a spoof advert. It was impossible for um, this to be a real bill of sale. So it was obviously somebody um, getting in on the, the um, uh, furore at the time and um, almost making fun of it. And I could tell it was a spoof advert because of the names involved. They were too good, I think, to be, to be true. So I actually, that, that comes into the novel, the people worrying, the, these people in, around Cripplegate who are selling bits of Milton get really worried that there's a new person on the market who's going to um, outdo them, and then they realize that it's, that it's fictional. Grotesque uh, comedy. Um, something else we'll just touch on, I think, before we throw it open, is to do with the relative status of Milton and Shakespeare at this time that we're talking about, from the 1790s through to roughly speaking, 1850, and subsequently. This is not a competition, Shakespeare versus Milton, but one can't help but observe that Shakespeare has rather stolen a march on Milton in the subsequent 150 years. Um, it is noticeable that up until about 1850, Shakespeare and Milton get spoken of regularly in the same breath. For example, the great chartist leader, Thomas Cooper, when he was imprisoned in Stamford Jail for allegedly taking part in a Chartist riot, said to his friends, um, he didn't have any books in jail, he said to his friends, it's okay because I know the first three books of Paradise Lost and all of Hamlet by heart, so I will be able to entertain myself, or words to that effect. Uh, an extraordinary man, Thomas Cooper, but the conjunction of Shakespeare and Milton up until about 1850 is a regular one, and then things change. Mm. And I don't know whether, because um, uh, we were talking earlier about whether, um, why, why is Milton out of fashion now? <laughs> um, and he was in fashion in the early uh, 19th century. Um, and maybe there's, um, uh, people are, um, aren't so interested in, in him now because um, he is seen as this um, prophetic uh, poet, and people are very suspicious of that kind of um, uh, sort of arrogant, uh, prof as they would see it, arrogant prophecy. Um, it might also be that his language is quite difficult. Um, 
It might also be that uh, um, he doesn't tell stories, um, although I think that the story of Paradise Lost is um, fantastic. Um, but there's also an interest in... Um, uh, we were discussing earlier, and maybe people want to um, come in on this uh, with, with the questions and comments, about why certain writers um, uh, have... Uh, Places, you know, places associated with them that become the object of um, pilgrimage or tourism. So you can go and visit Keats's house in Hampstead or in Rome, but there's no equivalent house for Shelley. There's no real house that people go to to visit for Byron, and there's certainly not really a house, a place that's associated with Milton. Um, uh, there is, and, and one might think maybe it's because um, uh, certain... I mean, Keats didn't move very much. He only lived in two big two houses. Shelley moved every six months, um, constantly uh, flitting. But I mean, no one really knows that much about Shakespeare's life in Stratford or or London, or even who Shakespeare was. I mean, the whole authorship question is is a chestnut. As we speak, uh, a new um, version of Shakespeare's new place is about to open in Stratford where the Birthplace Trust has been worrying about how to, you know, what to do with this really empty space that is new place. What kind of museum, shrine, temple, all those things that Britain was... How do you commemorate uh, the past or a figure from the past in material form is a real question for us all, particularly now that we are in something called the digital age, where images, such as we've been able to pull off the web rather easily, haven't we, Jenny, to show you today, you know, can just be, and there you are, you have an image, which is, of course, not the real thing. So we've raised all kinds of issues, um, we hope, um, and now are happy to take questions for the last, whatever it is, 13, 14 minutes. Yes. I, I, could, I could feel the Byronists in the audience sort of beginning to quiver with indignation. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, Newstead Abbey. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, yes, I know, and I've been there. It's great. But I don't know whether the... I mean, whether it features largely in the wider British cultural imagination in the way that some other houses associated with writers are, but... Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite right, because politics is extremely, we were talking beforehand, I mean, politics is hugely important in, in all this, not only the big world events like Waterloo, but also uh, local and national politics. Um, Scott, for example, whom I was not, I hope, mocking, but um, mourning in a sense that the um, absurdity of this monument in Princess Street, the largest monument to a writer anywhere in the world. You know, the sad fact is that his famed celebrity has not continued uh, in the same way. But having said that, when you arrive in Waverley Station now, you are confronted by a banner with some of Scott's words, uh, which may have a slight political agenda to them in trying to reclaim Scott as, you know, the great Scottish writer. Although 
Scott's politics. Yeah, Scott was a unionist, <laughs> so there's a certain irony about the fact that maybe this SNP are trying to um, uh, rebrand Scott as, as a writer for them. Yes. Yes, could, could we have a mic? Sorry for this, this lady here. Yeah. How much do you think personality, as opposed to brilliance or celebrity, uh, brilliance at um, writing, has to do with celebrity? Obviously not back with Shakespeare, but come the 19th century, come Walter Scott. And yes, it's a, good, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I think um, with certain uh, writers, um, Keats, uh, uh, Byron being two good examples, they actually create a myth about themselves in their writing. Um, uh, bo both, uh, <coughs> and so both of them, you, you, um, when you read them, you're reading the person as much as the, um, the words. Uh, and so that, that, obviously, that must go into the, the... They're almost writing with a thought about fame, I think, in both cases. But other ones, maybe you might think that it's... Um, something to do with uh, writing in um, a particular context or historical moment which captures the imagination of that age. So um, maybe the Brontes, for instance, who um, aren't, um, uh, who don't write so kind of autobiographically, but whose um, capacity to evoke a particular um, place, at least, and time and mood has captured something so that people all want to go and visit Hawthorne. Okay. I would just want to add, agree with all that, but I would want to add to that the difference that is made by technology and the possibilities of proliferating news about personality that, again, gathers speed in the second half of the 19th century. And here there's a real step change around 1880, 1890s, when it becomes possible to broadcast, in the literal sense of the word, news about the literary figures, literary figures like Kipling and Stevenson and um, uh, Conan Doyle and so on, it, in a way that was never possible before. So I think something does change there. Personality, celebrity in a slightly derogatory sense of the word, does become something very, very similar to what we know now, I think. Uh, one of my own pet authors here, Henry James, writes uh, again and again about the way people are more interested in the personality than they are in actually in reading the words. Um, and he's, uh, a lot of his short stories about writers are very prophetic in this way. Let me just add one more. Robert Louis Stevenson, whom I'm quite interested in, we're, well, we're both interested, we're both Edinburgh. Uh, boys and girls, so we're quite interested in Stevenson. There's a wonderful, wonderful monument to Stevenson in St. Giles's Church in Edinburgh by the great American sculptor St. Gaudens. If you stand in front of it and listen to what other people are saying, it is extremely informative. It goes something like that. Oh, that's Stevenson. What, this may sound patronizing. I don't mean it to come across like that. It's something about Stevenson's celebrity. Everybody knows who he is. But who reads what he wrote? Jekyll and Hyde, yes, because it's on all A-level or GCSE syllabuses. Treasure Island, not any longer, as a generation ago everybody did. Child's Gardener verses and so on. So actually, what people read of Stevenson's is now Jekyll and Hyde. 
They all know who he is. But the enormous body of writing is, sadly, not getting read. Um, several. Uh, one, okay, one there, one there, one there, and one there. Switched on? Yes. Yeah. Surprised you haven't mentioned Burns, because he, yes. yes. The um, but my question is, has anybody actually looked at printmaking? Because there were prints were available, cheap and available, and correlating the number of prints made um, by various printmakers, and as a source of information about the popularity of writers? The answer is yes. Shall I answer it? Yes, you go. go the answer is yes. <laughs> um, in particular, a very big book by William St. Clair called The Reading Nation, which goes into a huge amount of research into way beneath the radar that academic scholars normally work at to, to find the cheap editions that through which people did read Shakespeare and Milton and so on, particularly around this time. And the answer is that, as with Thomas Cooper, the chartist... Sorry, that's not what you meant. No, I meant portraits. Oh, portraits. I'm so sorry. Sorry, I didn't say that. I make it clear. OK. Do we know about portrait prints? Uh, no. We know less about portrait <laughs> prints than we have. We know much less. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so sorry to have misunderstood. Yes. No, no. Um, prints in the sense of printed images. Yes. I th yes. Indeed. I, th I think the answer is going to be the same, that the techniques of reproduction, particularly by the time you get to the Great Exhibition, which is such a landmark, I think are such that images of writers, but more so when, of course, photography comes in, yeah, and you get the photographs, again, at the end of the century, that you can't have an interview. An interview is a wholly new idea of the journalism at the end of the 19th century, that you interview great writers, and, yes, you have a, a photograph, an image. It's, it's, this is also the period um, in the 1820s, 1830s, when um, the, it was the rise of the annuals or gift books, um, which are aimed at women readers. And they were driven by pictures. And then poets had to provide poems to, to go with the pictures. And the pictures were engravings of famous portraits. So it was a way of commercializing and and making more widespread people's access to pictures. Um, and they, but they've sold very, very, uh, very highly. And this is, all, this is all in contrast with, of course, the, the simultaneous uh, increased value for the original, the authentic. So just when you're, when you're, um, uh, when you're actually spreading and what we might, might say democratizing or, or spreading the access to a whole lot of of reproductions of something, you then simultaneously up the price of and the value for the original or the authentic. Over there. Um, you mentioned that literary figures began to replace uh, religious thinkers in terms of influence. What do you think was responsible for that shift? Um, I, I mean, probably, um, to be very kind of simplistic about it, probably the Enlightenment, um, you know, the uh, uh, um, writers like Locke and Hume and um, f the, philo the um, empiric empiricist scientific revolutions of the 18th century, which probably lead to a, a growing um, loss of religious belief, um, and then people looking for something to replace it, and so they replace God with art um, and, um, and the imagination. 
So, so you, then you have, that's why, for instance, uh, Wordsworth comes along and writes the prelude modeled on um, Milton's Paradise Lost. And Milton's Paradise Lost is about the fall of um, Adam and Eve, the fall of, of God, uh, fall of man, whereas uh, Wordsworth's um, epic is about the growth of a poet's mind. So a religious narrative is replaced by a poetic, imaginative narrative. And along with that goes the appropriation of language, vocabulary, that was once absolutely the monopoly of divinity, and which now becomes possible to arrogate to human beings. Words like create, creative, original, authentic, all those words up until the 18th century would have been impossible uh, to attribute to a human being other than a king. I hear create the um, Earl of Glam's. Otherwise, no. It is around precisely this time of the Romantics, leading up to them through the 18th century, that that kind of vocabulary becomes possible for human beings. We, need, we can take maybe one more or two more. Yeah. Oh, no, one more, one more. Red light, yes. Um, okay, just a quick question for Jenny about why did you decide to write your novel and how did you find it writing about your research in a fictional way rather than academically? Yes. I, I decided to write the novel because I was just so intrigued by the story about um, uh, the digging up of uh, Milton and, and, as I said, wondering what happened to the bits. I wanted to know, you know, it, uh, what happened to Milton's bones. And, um, and it seemed that the only way to do that is, is to tell it um, as a fiction. But the, the, the difficulty and yet also the... Um, the, the exciting thing was um, trying to, I mean, develop the voice of my character. Once I had my voice, um, I, it was very easy to write. But the voice was um, uh, interesting because she's a working class, um, a working class woman who couldn't read. This was the constraint that I gave myself. So, how do you manage to write um, somebody who can't read or write herself? Um, and I, I tried to, I mean, I tried to steep myself in um, working uh, class women's uh, writing of the 18th century, and of which there is very little. And there's, um, there, uh, uh, so I found myself reading Mole Flanders by Daniel Defoe, which is actually a male writer writing a female voice. Uh, and um, that actually had interesting um, implications for my novel, um, which I don't want to give away the ending, so... Um, uh, but if you read the novel and you read the ending, you'll begin to see how some of these kind of um, ambiguities were, were worked out. Speaking of endings, <laughs> this is it. If you want to catch Jenny or me afterwards for a quick word uh, off-piste, then please feel free to, to do so. Otherwise, thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>